Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Good to see you both. Hey, hey. Good to be here. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Best-selling author Walter Isaacson is our guest. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with some big shoes to fill. Ulta Beauty's fourth quarter earnings report took a backseat to the news that CEO Mary Dillon is stepping down in June. She will transition to executive chair of Ulta's board and stay there for a year. Company president Dave Kimball will take over as CEO. And shares of Ulta were down 8% on Friday, Emily, because Mary Dillon has been the CEO since 2013. She has done a great job leading this business, and the new guy has a tough act to follow. And that's an understatement, Chris. Uh, what's really interesting is back in December, Ulta actually reorganized its leadership team. They brought in four new leaders for things like international operations and merchandising, all while keeping uh, the CEO, uh, now CEO, Dave Kimball, in his role as president. So uh, this transformation, I guess, was was precursored by a transformation in the leadership team back in December. But it certainly still took me as a shareholder and the market by surprise because of what an excellent job Mary Dillon has done. Now, she will be staying on for the next year, helping the transition, helping the new CEO, Dave Kimball, take over his role. But he certainly is going to have a challenging 2021 because when you look at Ulta's quarter, just their earnings this quarter, their same store sales fell nearly 5%. Revenue fell just nominally year over year. They stopped their expansion into Canada. All of these negative effects coming out of the COVID pandemic. So they still have a lot of initiatives that they need to prove out over the next year, over the next few years to say, hey, you know, Mary Dillon, she did some great things for the company over the past eight years, but here comes Dave, and Dave can still deliver that same return for shareholders. You know, I, I think about all the success that business has had, Jason, and this is something you and I have talked about before. The building up of the Ulta Beauty and Salon loyalty program, the, the tens of millions of people they got into that, I, you know, it's one of those things that shouldn't be overlooked in terms of Mary Dillon's legacy as a leader. No, not at all. I think you're absolutely right. I think the loyalty program plus the progress they've made on the mobile front, I think, has been phenomenal. I think they really embraced the changes in technology, not only the move to mobile. I mean, clearly, mobile is a thing, right? It's, it's not a fad. And they saw that early on and made the investments, I think the appropriate investments uh, for, for a business like that to bring in technology like augmented reality, allowing folks to be able to try on uh, different products without necessarily having to even be in the stores. I think you put it all together, it really is just a phenomenal job that Ms. Dillon has done. I think she will be sorely missed as the CEO. Uh, however, it's nice to know that she will be uh, holding that executive chairman role still. Real quick, Emily, before we move on, you look at the performance of the stock up, I think, in the neighborhood of 250% uh, during her leadership. The stock falling on Friday, do you, do you look at Ulta Beauty as a strong enough underlying business that this represents a great buying opportunity? Like, hey, the stock is almost 10% cheaper, or is this a little bit of a wait and see? 
I tend to lean on the cheaper side, but I will say that hesitantly because some of the numbers that we've seen for Ulta need to move uh, in the right direction to really make this a good buying opportunity. In particular, the focus that the business has put on their loyalty sales. Uh, loyalty members actually fell 10% year over year, which is exactly the opposite of what Mary Dillon was trying to do, which was transform this company into something that had a character, had a loyalty program, and had lots of people shopping online through these augmented reality initiatives, two-thirds of their users, of, of Ulta buyers, are still in-store shoppers only. Those numbers, the loyalty numbers and the, the online shopper numbers, need to continue to climb to justify buying today. Shares of DocuSign falling 7% on Friday, despite the fact that fourth quarter sales came in higher than expected, capping a year in which overall revenue came in at $1.5 billion. Jason, DocuSign's up 200% over the past year, it's not a cheap stock, but when you look at billings, when you look at the way they're adding customers, it seems like the business is growing in the ways that you would want. Oh, yes, it's growing in the ways that we would want, Chris. As a shareholder myself, I am very happy with this quarter. I think if you're looking for a stock to buy, and hang on to for years to come. I think this is really it's it's one that should be at the top of your list. Um, at the end of this year, this is going to be a two billion dollar revenue business. Um, and that to to your point, no, not a cheap stock. But hey, listen, that puts these shares at a refreshing twenty times forward sales. And in, in a world where forty times sales now seems to be the norm, DocuSign maybe looks like a deal. Uh, but I, I mean, I think the metrics. That matter really do tell the tale for this company. Revenue growth, 57%. Billings growth of 46%. They brought in more than 70,000 new customers for the quarter, now have just under 900,000 customers worldwide, and saw their strongest expansion in upsell rates yet, actually driving their net dollar, uh, their dollar net retention rate to, to uh, 123%, highest it's ever been. So this is a business right now today it's generating positive operating cash flow even after you back out the stock based compensation gap profitability is still a ways away but at this point I'd argue they don't have to worry about that given the numbers they continue to lob up they grew enterprise and commercial customers by 50,000 for the year international revenue grew 83%. It's now 21% of total revenue. and so They have a pretty cut-and-dry strategy. It really all just centers around this idea of being the go-to platform for the agreement process, pre- and post-signature. And it seems to be working. They're building out some pretty strong technology that is resonating with with customers. And there's an interesting data point on the call. I think this is really a testament to, to, to the decisions that they're making and the strategies that they're employing. They added nearly the same number of customers this past year, approximately 303,000, as they actually had in total at the time the company went public in 2018. So, so clearly, it's a business that's benefited from the from the tailwinds of the pandemic. Uh, I would argue that pan, the pandemic, notwithstanding, this is a business that's still doing all of the right things. Uh, maybe that hastened hastened the growth a little bit, but I think the guidance for the coming year is strong. They took a little bit of a target-like tone there in, in, in a conservative nature, uh, noting that that the ongoing impacts from coming out of the pandemic make operating expenses a little bit difficult to fully forecast. But but all things considered, I mean, this is a business that just continues to do all the right things. It seems. Fourth quarter revenue for JD.com rose 31%. 
Profits were also higher than expected, but shares of the Chinese e-commerce company falling more than 5% over the past week, Emily. It seemed like it was a, a nice cap to a strong fiscal year, though. Extremely strong year for JD. If anything, the fall today is just a contraction in valuation because of what a great 2020 it was for JD. And when you look forward to what 2021 could be for this business, even thinking about 2022, it's important to differentiate JD versus its other competitors in China, in particular Alibaba and Pinduoduo. A part of the reason why JD is going to have a tough time living up to their comps in 2020 is because virtually every other e-commerce platform in China had to suspend their delivery services during the lockdown. And this is where the difference in business model comes into play. Because JD owned their own logistics network, they owned the warehouses, they owned the distribution, they were able to stay in business while Alibaba's Tmall, Taobao, and Pinduoduo struggled. So, a lot of customers actually transformed to becoming JD customers paying that little bit premium to get the white glove service that JD offers just so they could get food and other items delivered to their house during the pandemic. It'll be really interesting to see how many of these customers JD is able to retain heading into 2021 versus how many churn back to the cheaper platforms. Bumble's first earnings report as a public company was a hit. Shares of the online dating company up more than 10% this week. Bumble is a growth company, Jason, and revenue grew more than 30%. Yeah, hey, listen, I'm clearly not the target demo here, but a women-first dating app, as founder Whitney Wolfhard describes it, I mean, I think there's there's a possibility that my daughters will be using these platforms at some point or another. So I appreciate her perspective, and I'm rooting for this company, to be honest with you. To the numbers, 31% revenue growth, that was, uh, I think, impressive. Most of that growth came from the Bumble app, uh, the Badu uh, app, which is the more international focus, a little bit slower growth there, and about 10.5% of, of overall growth there. But fourth quarter total paying users grew 32% to 2.7 million users. Total ARPU of of $20.02 versus just under $20. It grew 4% sequentially, 3% year over year. The company's calling for $164 million at the midpoint for the current quarter here. That represents 38% growth from a year ago. I was a little surprised at the the optimistic reception given that call for full year revenue of $720 million. That's around 24% growth. So it's not a company that maybe it's it's growing like a number of those other tech heavy SaaS business models that we've we've become so familiar with over the past year. Uh, but again, I kind of go back to DocuSign and talking about seeing stocks at, at a bit more of a refreshing valuation. That pegs this stock at around 11 times forward sales, which I think is actually pretty reasonable given that it seems like it's really just kind of getting started. They've introduced uh, the new Bumble Premium uh, subscription, introducing ancillary services and Bumble BFF for platonic relationships, Bumble Biz. Which is for professional relationships. I'd be interested to see where they take that. Um, you know, this is the type of company I would much rather give a few quarters to see how they live their life as a publicly traded company. But it seems like that first reported quarter was a good one. Coming up, we've got more earnings and a hot IPO. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. 
Unlike Bumble, Poshmark's first earnings report as a public company was not a hit on Wall Street. Revenue looked good, but the online seller of secondhand clothes issued soft guidance for the current quarter, and shares of Poshmark down nearly 20% on Friday, Emily. There's a lot of inherent skepticism about the concept of Poshmark, which is a community, again, mostly aimed at female users for people looking to resell their clothes. But if you look at just the numbers that management provided in this quarter, there are actually a lot of good things. We can start with gross merchandise volume, GMV. That was up 28% to just under $400 million for the quarter. So, pretty strong growth coming out of a year that was really light for, for the apparel industry overall. And they posted adjusted EBITDA of over $4 million, so increasingly becoming more pro- profitable, at least on an adjusted basis. But more importantly, they kept nearly an 18% take rate on all the orders placed on their platform. That is top tier for online sellers. And even more impressive when you consider the huge backlog of deliveries and the issues that we saw delivering for the holidays over the past season. Uh, where the issues came in, as you mentioned, was actually guidance. The company is guiding for 32 to 36 percent revenue growth over the next quarter, which was below expectations. And perhaps more importantly, they only provided guidance for that first quarter, not throughout 2021, which also could have worried some investors. I'll, I'll provide the caveat that this is the first quarter Poshmark has had as a public company. We don't know anything about management. Are they sandbagging? Are, are, are you know, we don't have those expectations already set? So we'll have to see if this is a struggling retailer in terms of growing revenue in 2021, or a management team that just likes to beat expectations. Roblox went public on Wednesday at $45 a share. For those unfamiliar, Roblox is an online game platform for children that is wildly popular. So shares of Roblox quickly shot up to more than $75. <laughs> Jason, we've seen some frothy IPOs over the past year. Does this seem crazy, or given the market as a whole, does this seem reasonable to you? Well, it feels like we've got a little bit of a theme going on here in regard to valuation. We've we've talked about it with a few of these other stories. I think with with Roblox, very big debut, trading at around forty times sales. Now that seems like the norm for a lot of these a lot of these companies that are just coming to the public markets. We still don't know enough about it, but what we do know, it is obviously a very popular platform. Um, in in the gaming world for children, my my kids I guess are a little bit older. They don't use it. I've never used it, so I'm not very familiar with it. But in studying the business and understanding how it works, it's it's for creators as well as players. It it reminded me they they have sort of an American Express like closed loop thing going on here in, in allowing folks to to both create and play games. It gives them. A lot of control over that over that data, and and I think that really offers the potential for some very compelling network effects uh, over time. And gaming obviously is a massive market opportunity. So while this is something that's still relatively new to the market, uh, I do understand the enthusiasm there. It's, it's a direct listing, of course, so no new shares were actually created, and then the IPO didn't raise any capital. It just gave folks the opportunity 
to invest in the business. Uh, they report having uh, just under 33 million daily active users at, at the end of 2020. That was up 85% from a year ago. Uh, I think it'll it'll be noteworthy to see how that how that active user growth uh, continues on through through 2021 and beyond. Uh, but but to, to to that user growth revenue followed in line. Revenue growth of 82% was was just under one billion dollars for the year. So again, a lot to learn about the business. I, I do understand the enthusiasm behind it, though. Shares of Dick's Sporting Goods up a bit this week. Fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. Emily, this is another company with some tough comps coming up in 2021. But uh, over the past year, this is a stock up 175%. The tough comps is the perfect description of what 2021 is going to be for Dick's Sporting Goods. This quarter, they had a 66% increase in earnings per share, with a record-setting 10% increase in same-store sales growth. But next quarter is when COVID kicks in. And if you actually rewind to the fourth quarter of 2020, so last year, or 2019, I should say, it was a completely different picture. They had guided for flat to 2% same-store sales growth in 2020. So, that will be a critical number to watch. Funko is one of the leading creators of licensed pop culture products, and shares of Funko rose 25% this week after a strong fourth quarter report. Jason, people aren't just watching The Mandalorian, they're also buying Mandalorian Funko Pops. Many may call this a toy company, but really, they call themselves a pop culture consumer products company. While that may seem on the surface, like semantics. I, I I think it's really not. Looking at the numbers, fourth quarter sales in the U.S., they had a great holiday season. I mean, sales were up 18% to $171 million. That offset weakness internationally. When you look at what these what, the, what this company sells, I mean, it really does feel, I mean, to that pop culture nature, it really does feel like a lot of what they're selling is straight out of a Simpsons episode. I mean, you're talking about things like Snapsies and Funko Vinyl Soda and Pop Albums and Stitch Shop and board games. But they're they're best known, I think, for their figures, specifically bobbleheads. To that point, non-figure products represented almost 23% of the company's sales for the year. They're trying to go beyond being just the bobblehead company, so to speak. Um, and it seems like it's working. Uh, they are uh, building out a direct to consumer business. Those sales grew uh, 80% to over $50 million, represent about 8% of the biz now, business now versus about 4% uh, a year ago. And it, just an interesting note there, they made in the call that there's there's a New York toy fair that's held annually. And, and because of, of, of obvious reasons, they, they hosted their first ever virtual Funko Fair, where they partnered with licensors and retailers to engage. That event led to nearly 1.5 million units being pre-sold to fans through their retail partners, and many of those products still don't ship. They're not even going to be released for six to nine months. They're six to nine months away from even being released. So, so you can see they, they obviously have a pretty popular line of products there that the consumers seem can't get enough of. And, and for the year, they're calling for sales growth of twenty-five to thirty percent. So, I, I hey, listen, I mean, you understand the market's uh, uh, reception to the earnings release this week. Up next, best-selling author Walter Isaacson with a look at gene editing and the future of the human race. Yes, really. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. It wasn't my intention to mislead you. It never should have been this way. What can I say? Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Walter Isaacson is an award-winning writer and best-selling author who's definitely a fan of innovation. 
Start with the fact that he's written biographies on Da Vinci, Albert Einstein, and Steve Jobs. So it kind of makes sense that his latest book would explore one of the most interesting parts of science and the Nobel Prize winner at its forefront. The book is The Codebreaker Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. Earlier this week, Isaacson talked with my colleague Corinne Cardina about gene editing, starting with how CRISPR technology works. CRISPR is a pretty simple system. Bacteria have been using it for more than a billion years. It's how they fight off viruses, which is, of course, a useful talent to have as we face all these pandemics. And what CRISPR is, is a system in bacteria that can remember the genetic code of viruses that attack them. And then they see that genetic code again, they take a scissors, a, uh, an enzyme, a scissors that will cut up that invading genetic code. And what Jennifer Dowd and her team did is said, oh, we can turn that into a scissors that will cut our own DNA at some place we've chosen, like if we want to get rid of a bad gene, like the mutation that causes sickle cell anemia, or if we want to uh, you know, create healthier children, we can use this system to just take a target of our, uh, that we want to cut in our DNA and to use a guide that will take an enzyme scissors there and cut it there. So within the gene editing space, there is a major difference between what is called somatic gene editing and germline gene editing. So I'll give you kind of my understanding and you can check me on this. Uh, with somatic gene editing, you're altering the genes within a particular person. So there's either the ex vivo method, removing their cells, engineering them in a lab, putting them back in the body, or the in vivo method in which you inject gene editing molecules into the body. So somatic means it, it, it means body. It changes the person's genes and how their body creates certain proteins, but it does not impact how they pass on those original genes to their offspring. So that brings us to germline editing, also called inheritable edits, in which the edits to the gene can be passed on to the offspring. So you say that germline editing holds more promise, but more peril. Can you explain some of the big ethical questions that scientists are grappling with about germline editing and why it's such a big jump from somatic gene editing, which has largely already become accepted? You mentioned um, sickle cell anemia, plenty of trials going on with the somatic side. Yes, we've already cured sickle cell anemia this past year in a patient named Victoria Gray in Mississippi using somatic editing, meaning her stem cells were taken out of her body, edited, returned to her body. We've also used CRISPR in a far more controversial way. More than Just two years ago, a Chinese scientist who had been to Jennifer Doudna's seminars used CRISPR to edit the embryos what became two twin girls in China. And they had been edited so that they didn't have a receptor that allows them to get the virus that causes AIDS. And by doing it in an early stage embryo, in theory, it means you're not just editing those twin girls, you're editing all their descendants. You're editing the human race. So the moral question becomes, 
Should we hack our own evolution? It's like Prometheus snatching fire from the gods. We now have the power to design our children and all of our descendants not to have certain traits or maybe to enhance certain traits like height or hair color or IQ, whatever you may do in the future. That becomes ethically questionable to some people. Certainly, we'd want to do it in order to fight off dreaded diseases like Huntington's or cystic fibrosis or sickle cell. But should the rich be allowed to buy better genes for their kids to make them taller and make them smarter or you know, give them greater muscle mass? Not something we could do right now, but in the next few decades, that'll be possible. Well, we want to edit out some of the diversity of our species. You know, behind me is my balcony overlooking the French Quarter in New Orleans. I look at the passing parade of all sorts of types of people that add to the richness of our society. If we start editing our children, are we going to lose some of our diversity? Are we going to lose this notion that we're all created equal? So these are the things that Jennifer Doudna, after she makes this discovery, she has a nightmare that somebody wants to learn about it. And when she goes into the room to meet the person in her nightmare, it's Adolf Hitler. So the book not only talks about the science of this, but it talks about how Jennifer Doudna went on a journey. I mean, went on a mission to enlist scientists around the world to say, what rules are we going to have in place for using this new technology? That's kind of where the role of public policy comes into the book. Uh, you discuss the very valid concerns about genetically encoding inequality. Of course, right now we have lots of financial inequality in the world, but if parents are able to go to the, quote, genetic supermarket, it's not going to be free. Um, you discuss references to Brave New World, 1984. How do you see the role of public policy in gene editing? And, and maybe how does Jennifer see it as well? I think initially Jennifer Doudna and myself flinched at the notion of creating genetically modified children. It's like we all flinch maybe the first time we talk about GMOs in our food. But like GMOs in our food, we have to figure out, well, when can it be good and when can it be bad? And at a certain point, I began to think, and so did uh, Jennifer Dowden, that there are certain times where it would be immoral not to use this technology to alleviate suffering, to try to stop, you know, brutal diseases like Huntington's disease. But the way we're going to have to figure it out it's not just delegated to the politicians or delegated to the scientists. I think we all have to be involved in thinking this new technology through. And by we, I mean you and me, Corinne, and you and me, all the listeners of this uh, show, are going to have to say we should be discussing this as a society. It's the largest moral issue we're going to face. And in order to discuss it, it helps to know a little bit about it. And so by telling the story of Jennifer Dowd, I hope I make it very easy to understand what the possibilities are. And that way, all of us can engage in this discussion, whether it's at the dinner table or in our political lives with what are we going to do with this newfound fire that we've snatched from the gods? 
And it's not just scientists in labs necessarily who are doing and experimenting with gene editing. So I want to talk a little bit about what you call the rebels or the troublemakers. Um, you quote Steve Jobs' famous Apple ad from 97 uh, that celebrated the rebels and troublemakers who pushed the human race forward. We talked a little bit about the Chinese scientists who kind of created CRISPR babies uh, without getting approval from the greater scientific community. He actually, you know, got in trouble. He served time in prison. He's not allowed to do science in China anymore. Um, can you tell us about some of the troublemakers that you discuss in the book that have kind of forced us into a new era of gene editing? Well, the most prominent was the, uh, the scientist in China named He Zhuangqi, who decided in sort of a rogue experiment to just make the first designer babies. People say, well, it's science fiction, it can't happen. Well, it's already happened. So he pushed it forward. And I think he did it in a very irresponsible way, which is why he's under house arrest in China, because it wasn't medically necessary. You can prevent AIDS in other ways. And it was done in a sloppy fashion. But the question becomes, what happens when it can be done in a safe way? And what happens when it is medically necessary? It's not that hard to do. In the book, I describe going to Jennifer Doudna's lab in Berkeley, and within two days, with just two graduate students helping me, I was able to edit human genes. Now, don't worry, I, we took them after I'd added, uh, edited the cells and we mixed it with chlorine and killed them and flushed them down a drain. I didn't unleash them on the world. But it's going to be something that in the next couple of decades will become easy enough for any uh, graduate student to do. And eventually, people will be able to do it like they create webcasts in their own uh, house. So we have to learn what the rules should be. So I want to talk a little bit about entrepreneurship. So Jennifer occupies a really interesting, um, a huge spectrum from basic science researcher and really just curiosity driven, um, digging into things because she's curious all the way to being a founder of multiple companies. So the race to develop CRISPR technology led to three companies formed by the cast of characters that you chronicle. There's Intellia, Editas Medicine and CRISPR Therapeutics. Of course, there are more gene editing companies now, but these are the three that we've kind of familiarized ourselves with the founders um, of by the end of your book. So at The Motley Fool, we're investors. Uh, many of our audience members may have heard of some of these companies and some may have invested in one or all three. What would you say generally to anyone thinking about putting their money behind companies focused on gene editing applications? Well, first of all, it's both useful, but also joyful to actually understand what these technologies do. And that's what my book is about, which is, all right, what is CRISPR therapeutics? How does that work? Now, that's a good company to invest in. It was just very successful in helping cure sickle cell anemia and a blood disease over in Europe. Likewise, uh, things like Mammoth Biosciences, which was founded by uh, Jennifer Dowden and her graduate students, and its rival group, Sherlock Biosciences, which was founded by the MIT Harvard people like Fong Zhang and his graduate students, 
Those have done things like use CRISPR and RNA to detect viruses. Well, that's become very useful these days. So I think that it's always a problem when you invest based on whims and hunches. It's useful to understand the product. It's useful to understand what do these companies do. And that's why I spend a lot of time in my book showing how they form these companies and then looking at how everything from coronavirus to cancer to sickle cell are being affected by the technologies these scientists first discovered and then decided to commercialize when they formed companies. The book is The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. It was released this week as the number one bestseller on Amazon. Up next, Emily Flippin and Jason Moser return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Now here we go, jumping science, jumping it all over. Like bumping around the town, like when you're driving a Range Rover. Expanding the horizon, yeah. expanding the parameters. Expanding the rhymes of soccer MC amateurs. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Emily Flippin. Our email address is radio at fool.com. Got an email from Stephen Lee in Stillwater, Oklahoma. He writes, I'm always looking for opportunities for long-term buy-and-hold stocks. An idea I've been looking at for about a year now has been in the area of sports betting. Fewer than half of the states in America have actually legalized it, so it looks like a growth opportunity. I recently bought a basket of Penn National, DraftKings, and MGM, as these companies already have a strong stake in the sports betting market. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the industry's future, as well as if you think a basket similar to this is a good long-term buy and hold. Uh, Jason, I'll just start with you. Uh, Love the fact that right out of the gate, Stephen has the right mindset in terms of looking for long-term buy-and-hold stocks. Uh, Yeah, totally agree. And and I absolutely do believe this is a a terrific long-term opportunity. Um, I'm a a proponent of of, uh, legalizing sports betting. I I enjoy laying down a little uh, cash here and there myself. Um, and, and, and yeah, I mean, a lot of states haven't even really uh, brought it into the fold yet. But but that 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 is just a matter of time, I think. And and so when it comes to finding the companies that will that will prosper from this opportunity, I think you have to look to uh, clearly the company, the bigger companies, uh, companies like Penn that have forged partnerships with with media companies like Barstool Sports, for example. Um, I mean, they're going to be able to utilize. A lot of data that they get from their users. Uh, size really does matter, I think, in this industry because sports betting is a tough business. But but the companies that do it well, I think, stand to benefit. And I, and I, yeah, I don't think you can put that toothpaste back in the tube. I think we're only going to see more and more states legalize it. And and I like the basket approach. Emily, what do you think? 
I think this listener should definitely give themselves a pat on the back for approaching a really volatile industry the correct way. Uh, While it is a growth industry, when you think about the opportunity for sports betting, it also has a lot of risk. And trying to pick a single winner in a space whose regulations haven't even fully developed is a recipe for disaster. So I agree with the idea of buying a basket, uh, spreading your bets across. But in this case, I would just recommend uh, this listener and everybody listening to think about what's driving the growth in the businesses that you're adding to your basket. Um, It can be easy to over-involve yourself with casino companies, for instance, when you're trying to get exposure to sports betting. So, don't forget about businesses like Fubo TV, which offers a platform, or uh, GAN Limited, which offers the back-end technology for sports betting. There's lots of ways to play the space. Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Jason Mosier, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Yeah, taking a look at a company called Dexcom, ticker is DXCM. This is a medical device company that focuses on the design, development, and commercialization of continuous glucose monitoring. That's called CGM. Those are systems for folks with diabetes. Um, and if you look at some of the data, it's it's kind of astounding. I mean, the, the International Diabetes Federation estimates that in 2019, 463 million adults around the world had diabetes. If you look at the CDC data, estimates were that the uh, in, in 2018, you had about 34 million people with diabetes, of which 26.9 million people ha- that, that was actually diagnosed. Uh, so, so Dexcom is focused on building medical device uh, devices for these folks to be able to monitor their diabetes. And uh, tech and connectivity investments are bringing remote patient monitoring to reality. So, this is really an Internet of Medical Things play. Partnerships with platforms like Livongo to bring data to that ecosystem, ergo Teladoc Health ecosystem, because Teladoc Health acquired Livongo, uh, I think just really open up a world of opportunities for a company like Dexcom. And to that point, they've grown revenue at a 37% annualized rate over the last five years. So, a lot to like about this one. I'm enjoying digging into it. Dan, question about Dexcom? You know what, Chris? Less of a question, more of a comment. I don't. I can't even remember the last time we did a Motley Fool Money without a medical stock on stocks on our radar. I like that comment. I think that's an astute observation, and I, and I would just uh, reply with with the uh, idea that it is a massive, massive market opportunity uh, where technology is just really making uh, things more possible today than we ever would have imagined. Emily Flippin, what are you looking at this week? I'm looking at a business called Coupang. The ticker is CPNG. Um, it's often called the Amazon of Korea. They went public on March 11th, so brand new company. Um, and it's really interesting play on e-commerce in Korea. Amazing, huge addressable market. Over $530 billion in addressable market expected by 2024, of which Coupang is the largest at 20% market share. Dan, question about Coupang? Yeah, I generally don't really like IPOs, to be honest. It's not something that I invest in too much. Emily, is there something about this IPO that's got you extra excited? Absolutely not. I love the business, but I agree with you about IPOs, which is why this is a radar stock and not a recommendation. Two very different businesses, Dan. You got one you want to add to your watch list? Yeah, Chris, like I said, I'm not into IPOs, so I'm going Dexcom. (laughs) Hey, now. 
I like that your disdain for IPOs overcomes <laughs> your disdain for the number of times we get medical companies. Listen, in it's radar not stuff. disdain for medical companies. It's just that, you know, you hear about them week in and week out <laughs> on this show, at least. Jason Moser, Emily Flippin, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Okay.